The 11th and 12th centuries were eras of immense change in Europe and the wider world. As the new millennium dawned, vast armadas of battle-hardened Viking warriors, many of them still pagans, regularly set sail to war, often claiming entire kingdoms as their own, now led not by warlords, but anointed kings. Within a generation, most Scandinavian rulers were Christian, and by the 1100s, their marauding way of life, and even the ships they sailed in, cutting-edge technology for centuries, had become obsolete. How did this shift happen, and what became of the last Vikings? This is a standalone documentary delving into the fascinating history of the late Viking world on the verge of the medieval era. It's also the fourth and final part in a series charting the evolution of the Viking longship. You can watch those videos here, but they aren't necessary for understanding this one. If you'd like to see me making shorter historical videos, go subscribe to my second channel, where I'm currently uploading every single week. This video is sponsored by Magellan TV, a brand new educational streaming service with over 2,000 documentaries to watch on all manner of different subjects. Magellan's producers and curators have brought together an astounding collection of documentaries on history, science, nature, culture and geography. These include films, series and exclusive playlists you can't find anywhere else. Like Netflix, this is a streaming service, but made just for documentary lovers and knowledge seekers. You can watch Magellan anywhere, at any time, on any device, directly through the High Quality app, which also offers a wide selection of content in 4K at no extra cost. There are no ads or limited access at any time, and the best part, new documentaries are added on a weekly basis. Recently, I've been making my way through Magellan's collection of ancient history documentaries. This one on Pharaoh Ramesses II of Egypt, one of the most powerful kings in history, was particularly fascinating. Those of you who head on over to try.magellantv.com forward slash history time or use my link in the description below will get a free trial. So what are you waiting for? Head on over and get yourself some free knowledge. By the year 1026, European ruler he may have been, anointed monarch of both Denmark and England, but King Canute was most certainly still a Viking at heart. War had been bred into him, and in that year, his position as foremost warlord in the North Sea secure, the Pope's blessing in hand, he went north to crush his enemies. Foremost amongst them, of course, was another anointed Christian monarch, Olaf Haraldsson, the King of Norway, a thorn in Canute's side since the days of Ethelred the Unready. By the summer of 1026, 
Canute's invasion force was ready. He'd kept a massive Viking army on retainer since his invasion of England a decade earlier. Many of them still pagans at heart. And in all likelihood, they were probably eager for a fight. But this time, it wasn't just Scandinavians standing aboard Canute's armada. English thanes now stood side by side with Danishmen, probably with Slavic, Norwegian and Swedish warriors too. England's influence had stretched here before, during the last lull in Viking activity in the early to mid 10th century, when the great king Athelstan fostered a young Norwegian boy, one of the sons of the first king of Norway, Harald Finehair, at his court before eventually sending him home as a Christian to reclaim his throne. And now, English influence was coming this way again, albeit this time with a Danish tinge. We know Canute's ally, Earl Ulf, was present, along with the new Jarl of Laid, Hakon Eriksson. Though it's unclear whether the young Godwin Earl of Wessex was there too. Though if he had been, perhaps it might have felt a little like revenge for the decades of chaos England had suffered under Scandinavian hands during his youth. This being a rare time when English soldiers went to Scandinavia to fight and not the other way round. But what of the fleet that took them there? Well, in the 13th century saga of Olaf Haraldsson, we have reference to Canute's dragon ship during the campaign. And unsurprisingly, for the only man ever to successfully rule over England, Denmark and Norway for an extended period of time, it's the largest ever mentioned. Canute the Great was at last ready with his fleet and left the land, and a vast number of men he had, and ships frightfully large. He himself had a dragon ship, so large that it had sixty banks of rowers, and the head was gilt all over. Earl Hakon had another dragon of forty banks, and it also had a gilt figure head. The sails of both were in stripes of blue, red and green and the vessels were painted all above the water stroke, and all that belonged to their equipment was most splendid. Up until fairly recently, and the discovery of ships such as the Reskilda Six, vessels of this size were often thought to be little more than fantasy. That great dragon boat, later scuttled in the Reskilda harbour, measuring 37 metres long, is the largest ever discovered, and dates to around 1025, exactly the time Canute prepared for his invasion. The ensuing battle fought at the Helgea River with the combined navies of both sides, said by chroniclers to number more than a thousand ships in all. Olaf, being supported by Anund Jakob, the new king of Sweden, was a hard-fought affair. Eventually, after great slaughter on both sides, Canute's numerically superior force triumphed, leaving him 
the undisputed master of all Scandinavia. By 1028, he sailed unopposed into Trondheim to lay claim to the Kingdom of Norway, placing it under the rule of his son, Sven, with his English mother, Elfgifu, from a prominent Mercian noble family in a supervisory role. Two years later, Olaf returned with a new army, comprised mostly of Swedish mercenaries. According to the sagas, marching to their deaths at the famous Battle of Stiklestad, singing pagan songs of old. He'd be remembered as a Christian saint and can still be seen at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem today. From 1030 onwards, Canute ruled as undisputed master of the North Sea, even achieving the submission of the Swedish king, Anund Jakob, himself still engaged in a centuries-old power struggle with the Geats of the southern forests of modern-day Sweden. Though very little written evidence exists on Sweden during this era, coins would soon be minted at the Sigtuna region with Canute's name on them, the first of their type in Sweden. And a large number of rune stones scattered over the landscape would commemorate those who went to fight in Canute's army. Some bringing back large amounts of wealth and winning glory for themselves. Though he kept a permanent fleet of dragon boats on retainer, along with the hardened mercenaries to go with them, men who still viewed him as gold-giver and warlord. Canute's good relations with the papacy in Rome and the Holy Roman Emperor Conrad on his southern border speaks of his desire to be viewed by his Christian subjects not as a Viking, but as a Christian emperor of the north. A new Charlemagne. In accompanying his ally Conrad to Rome in 1027 for his coronation, Canute set a precedent that would soon be followed by a variety of Viking rulers. Perhaps most notably by Thorfinn the Mighty, the Jarl of Orkney, in 1047. A man who up until that point had fought a generation of vicious blood feuds and wars with kinsmen and neighbours alike to become sole ruler of the Northern Isles. During his journey, Thorfinn was feasted by the King of Denmark, Sven Estridsson, and Henry III, the Holy Roman Emperor and most powerful ruler in Europe at the time. Before returning to dedicate himself to the administration and social aspects of his realm, dying a respected and veteran king some 20 years later. To a certain extent, Thorfinn and others like him who made the same journey to Rome had probably been emulating Canute in doing so. 
For, in 1031, when Thorfinn had still been a young man, with many brothers and many enemies. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, without bloodshed, Canute had sailed up into the northern seas to receive the submission of three Scottish rulers. Malcolm, the King of Alba, Macbeth, the ruler of Moray, and Lamarck, an unidentified ruler of an Irish sea kingdom. Potentially, Ekmark Mac Ragnail, a descendant of Ivar the Boneless, with Galloway under his sway. By this time, all across Britain and Northern Europe, the Vikings had already left their mark. But equally so, immigrant populations had begun to merge with pre-existing ones, creating distinct cultural zones. Ireland, from where one of the Skuldalev ships originated, was one such area. Though defeated by Irish King Brian Boru at Clontarf in 1014, Dublin remained the single most powerful settlement on the island, and one steeped in Norse culture, though Gaelic too. The Ostermen, as they began to be called, who ruled there, ever the shrewd negotiators, probably gave Canute, with his huge fleet, some sort of allegiance allowing him at least some sort of control over the western seaways. The Ostermen of Dublin and the other port cities remained integral in Irish power politics until the arrival of the Normans in the late 12th century. Another force descended from Vikings. Canute's empire though impressive on a map, in truth lacked any kind of legislative unity, being kept together by sheer force of will and reputation. When the great king died, it all came crashing down, bringing with it the extinction of his male line just seven years later. Don't forget to subscribe as I'll be covering these events in great detail in the future. Yet, even before Canute's death, possibly during a bout of illness that preceded it, the empire began to unravel. Particularly in Norway, where the local power brokers, unhappy with the rule of Elfgifu and Canute's son Sven, instead proclaimed a son of Olaf Haraldsson, just seven years old at the time, as their new king. Presumably with the real power still firmly in the hands of the Jarls. Sven Knut's son was followed to the grave by his father just a few months later. One of only two kings of England to bear the title Great. He was buried at Winchester, given all the honours of a West Saxon king. just as his vast Viking army, very possibly hinted at by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, went on a rampage, seeking severance pay in the only way they knew how, before disbanding and going home, 
for a new war was on the horizon. The greatest succession crisis ever seen in the Northlands. Largely created by Canute's concurrent marriages to two separate women. One English and one Norman. Canute's son by Emma of Normandy, Harthur Canute, still a teenager, had been supposed to inherit England and Denmark. Yet, unwilling to leave Denmark, open as it was to Norwegian invasion, his English half-brother, Harold Harefoot, son of Elfgifu of Northampton, managed to seize power instead. In the ensuing chaos, Emma fled to Flanders, as Godwin and the other English earls had no choice but to accept Harold as king. Outraged by the actions of his half-brother, Harthur Canute not only came to terms with Magnus in 1038, but apparently reached an agreement whereby the survivor of the two would inherit the throne of the other agreeing to combine their forces against Harold Harefoot. By March 1040, just as Harthur Canute amassed a great fleet to reclaim England, his half-brother died. Arriving on English shores with his fleet anyway, the mercenaries were paid vast sums of Danegeld, and Emma of Normandy returned as the power behind the throne. Leaving the Earl Godwin and many other English landowners who'd supported Harold Harefoot in an awkward position. Though in truth we know barely anything about him, Harthur Canute does not seem to have been a good king. And by June 1042, still a very young man, whilst drinking heavily at a feast and preparing for an invasion of Norway, he dropped dead. Magnus the Good, only around 18 years old, but already a seasoned battlefield commander, became ruler of both Norway and Denmark. In England, meanwhile, for lack of a better option, the Witangamot, or ruling council of power brokers, sent for the only surviving claimant to the throne. An estranged son of Ethelred the Unready and Emma of Normandy, who'd been abandoned by his mother at the Norman court decades earlier, long ago relinquishing any claims to regal authority for a holy life. When Edward the Confessor crossed over the Channel that year, he entered a precarious position as figurehead of a state dominated by powerful magnates in place since the days of Canute. In reality, he'd been brought in to oppose Magnus of Norway, rather than for any real loyalty felt on his behalf by men such as Godwin, the most powerful of the new dynasties that ruled England. And a man who may very well have had something to do with the gruesome blinding and subsequent death of Edward's brother, Alfred, a decade earlier. 
Ostensibly, the English had taken back control, although in reality, many of them were now Anglo-Danish. Many of their families now married into Danish ones, such as Godwin himself. And Edward was himself essentially a Norman, having spent the vast majority of his life across the Channel. Thus, Godwin's sons, Harold Godwinson and Tostig, were half Scandinavian, to a certain extent, half Vikings, who certainly used longships for war. We can see this in near-contemporary artefacts, such as the Bayer Tapestry. And in contemporary written accounts, such as the propagandistic history of Emma, written by Saint Omer of Flanders. When at length they were all gathered, they went on board the towered ships. On one side, lions moulded in gold were to be seen. On the other, birds on the top of the masts, or dragons of various kinds, poured fire from their nostrils. Irish Vikings could still play a significant role in British politics. Even long after the traditional end of the Viking Age in 1066. Particularly in areas with less centralised control and more numerous states, such as the Western Seaways and the Irish Sea. In the later 11th century, for example, Griffith ap Cynan, a Welsh king of Gwynedd, came to the throne only with the help of Irish Vikings from Dublin along with a fleet of longships and the mercenaries to man them. Godwin himself seems to have had close ties with the Norscale port cities in Ireland, seeking refuge there along with his entire family and household warriors during his disputes with the king in the late 1040s and early 1050s. And later, after his son, Harold Godwinson, lost his life at Hastings, the dynasty would relocate again, launching an ultimately unsuccessful attempt on the throne a few years later, with aid from Ireland. But that was in the future. In January 1066, when Edward the Confessor finally died childless, the stage was set for the most famous confrontation in all of English history. Unlike Harthacanute's invasion, this time the fighting would be very real. What often isn't realised is that the three major armies of 1066 all utilised longships in war. And all were in some way tinged by Scandinavian culture. In England, Harold Godwinson took the throne, though after a disagreement with his brother Tostig, the younger man went Viking, raising a small fleet of longships to harass his brother's coasts, before ultimately heading to Norway to seek the support of the Norwegian king. We'll hear more of him later. His own claims harking back to the agreement between Harthacanute and Magnus. 
Across the Channel, meanwhile, the Norman Duke, William, allegedly having been promised the throne by Edward, waited for his moment to strike. But of course, the story isn't as simple as that. On the 29th of July, 1030, the dethroned Norwegian king, Olaf Haraldsson, returned to his homeland for one final time in an attempt to seize back control from the Viking Emperor Canute. In the previous year, the last Jarl of Laid, Hakon Eriksson, had drowned at sea in somewhat suspicious circumstances. And perhaps Olaf now saw his chance for vengeance. On that day, however, near the village of Stiklestad in northern Norway, his luck ran out. A coalition of local elites, set to benefit financially from Canute's overlordship, met him on the battlefield along with their peasant levies. Hemmed in by the much larger force of Trondheimus, Olaf's small but elite force, largely made up of Swedish mercenaries, died where they stood. They didn't all die, however. And Olaf's young half-brother, just 16 years old at the time, if the saga traditions are to be believed, though already a leader of men, managed to escape the battlefield to fight another day. Given refuge by men loyal to Olaf in the remote mountains of northern Scandinavia, the young man eventually made his way to Sweden. And from there, onwards to the riverways of Eastern Europe and fortune beyond. For that man was Harald Hardrada. Still an unknown figure at the time, he was destined to be one of the most famous Vikings of all. And some 36 years later, very nearly the conqueror of England. Many were the adventurers who had passed this way over the centuries. Harold was about to enter the lands of the Rus. Though mostly Slavic in culture by this point, Archaeology and the written record still suggest a tinge of Scandinavian culture and certainly diplomatic ties. Passing through the trading town of Lake Ladoga, the most important Rus trading centre until it lost its influence in the mid-10th century, sacked by Eric of Laid in 996 and likely again by his half-brother Sven in 1015, ever the threat of a town surrounded by marauding warlords. The young man went ever onwards, seeking out his destiny with a distant relative at the city of Kiev. Though perhaps not quite as numerous as their Swedish forebears of the 9th and 10th centuries, 
By the 11th century, many expeditions, not to mention small bands of warriors, still regularly made the journey east. Later sagas and contemporary runestones tell us that much. As well as accounts from the nations they travelled to. One of the largest of these expeditions seems to be that of Ingvar the Far-Travelled. Written down in the later 12th century, the saga of Ingvar the Widefarer remains one of the most interesting of all Norse sagas. Due to its corroboration in archaeology and in the contemporary sources of the regions they travelled to, Though the details differ from telling to telling, Ingvar is traditionally said to have been a soldier in the service of the Swedish king Olaf Skotkonung, raising a great force of warriors for an expedition to Circland in the east, probably somewhere on the shores of the Caspian Sea. The voyage was recorded for posterity on runestones all over the Swedish uplands. On the way, very possibly getting involved in a regional dispute in Georgia in 1042, most of the expedition never made it home. Harold wouldn't go as far as Ingvar, not yet anyway. But he was in good company, for once he arrived in Kiev, he found employ with the Grand Prince Yaroslav the Wise. A Christian now, but one who still engaged in wide-scale raiding and warfare. There was precedent for this arrangement. Yaroslav's father, Vladimir, a pagan warlord, had once left his lands in the late 10th century to seek refuge at Jarl Hakon's court in Laid, returning with a huge army to reclaim his birthright. And now Harald would follow in his footsteps but the other way round. Though he wasn't as renowned as the Rus Prince, he was young and would have to work his way up. But good soldiers were always needed in Yaroslav's Dracina, roughly meaning warrior band. Situated on the edge of the steppe lands to the east, the Rus were in a permanent state of war, most notably against the Pecheneg horse nomads, fierce warriors of the steppe. Harald wouldn't have been able to escape at least a few engagements against them, no doubt also against rebellious Slavic subject peoples too, eventually becoming a notable commander in Yaroslav's army. Harald's saga tells us that he wished to marry Yaroslav's daughter, Elisev. In order to do so, however, he had to make a fortune for himself first. For Yaroslav only married his daughters to rulers of renown. Harald would go south, as tens of thousands had done before him, and tens of thousands would do after, to serve in the Varangian Guard at Constantinople. Over the next decade, waging war from Bulgaria 
to Syria in the process. Though smaller, less organised groups of Scandinavians had no doubt been heading to the great city to pledge their services as swords for hire for generations by the 980s. It was the Rus prince Vladimir the Great who sent the very same Viking army that had won him his throne to the court of Basil II in return for his sister's hand in marriage. The first princess born in the purple ever to be married to a barbarian king. Thus began the lengthy history of the Varangian Guard and the transformation of Rus culture to Orthodox Christianity. Those men sent to the Imperial Army were formed into an elite autonomous unit, serving admirably for hundreds of years to come, soon becoming integral to the Byzantine Army. At the beginning, they were probably mostly Swedes, but by the 11th century, Danes, Norwegians and Icelanders, attracted by the high pay and glory that could be won, made the long journey to sign up. Evidence of these men can still be seen at the Church of the Hagia Sophia today. Runic graffiti etched into the marble by bored guardsmen. After years of service, many would return home to Scandinavia, some being incredibly rich men when they did so. Figures such as the Icelander Bolli Bolason, recorded in the Laxdale saga. Bolli rode from the ship with eleven companions, all wearing scarlet and riding in golden saddles. Bolli was wearing clothes of gold-embroidered silk, which the Greek emperor had given him. He was girt with the sword Legbiter. Its pommel, now gold-embossed, and the hilt bound with gold. He had a gilded helmet on his head, and a red shield at his side on which a knight was traced in gold. He carried a lance in his hand, as is the custom in foreign lands. Harold was no exception. According to his saga, quickly rising through the ranks and serving as an officer from 1034, to 1043, fighting in Sicily, Bulgaria, Anatolia, and the Holy Land. Though it is tempting to think of him using longships during this time, we simply don't know how he got around, probably in all likelihood doing so in the Byzantine navy on Dromans. Similarly, the Rus likely used much smaller craft by this point, having a divergent shipbuilding tradition to the longships of their ancestors. These boats were suited for river journeys rather than landing craft for high seas. Eventually, Harold returned home, but not before taking part in the looting of a palace treasury during a bout of civil discord in the 1040s. Such was his right as a guardsman. 
breaking out through the Black Sea, laden down with treasure and riches, Harald finally began the long journey home. According to the saga, stopping off to marry Yaroslav's daughter en route. Upon arriving in Norway, however, there was an issue. He found his own kinsman on the throne. And Hardrada wasn't one for sharing power. Much had changed since Olaf Haraldsson's death in 1030. He'd been sainted not long after the Battle of Stiklestad, now beginning to be seen as Norway's eternal king, a position he still holds today. Despite having been betrayed by his own people, the memory of Olaf was no doubt used as a powerful unifier and rallying cry against domination from both Denmark and England. The young man who acted as a figurehead for this movement was Olaf's young son, Magnus. Despite being a boy king when he came to rule, Magnus is unusual in the respect that he does seem to have been a capable military commander and a respected king. It was he who probably brought the Jomsborg fortress to an end in the 1040s and fought many battles against the Slavs to Denmark's south. In 1042, after Hartha Canute's death, even succeeding in taking control of Denmark. However, it would prove extremely troublesome to keep. In 1043, a son of Canute's ally Ulf and his sister Estrid, Sven Estridsson, had risen to prominence when he won a battle on behalf of Magnus near the town of Hedeby against an invading army of Wends. Swiftly using the momentum from this victory at Lirskov Heath, Sven was crowned by the nobility. Of course, this didn't last, as Magnus returned to defeat Sven on a number of occasions, eventually seeing him flee to Sweden, from where he was able to establish a minor foothold in Scania, proving a constant thorn in the side of Norwegian ambitions. By 1045, however, the war was further confused by the return of Harald Hardrada, who, at first, as a means to an end, allied himself with Sven against Magnus. Though before long, when he realised Sven would not be his lackey, the two Norwegian rulers made common cause, entering into an uneasy joint rule although the later saga tradition says they could not bear to be in the same room as one another, holding separate courts at different ends of the kingdom. Magnus would be near impossible for Harald to dislodge, but likewise Harald was too powerful for Magnus to defeat, both agreeing to rule together. We have evidence of a ship dating to this time, the Skuldalev II, an impressive longship measuring 29 metres. Not quite as large as that fit for an emperor like Canute, but perhaps good enough for a king. Maybe owned by one of these two men. 
commissioned to a famous Dublin shipwright, perhaps. In 1047, Magnus died, clearing the way for Harald to become the undisputed ruler of Norway. Far from content, however, he had ambitions to restore the days of the North Sea Empire. Embarking on a 15-year campaign against his southern neighbour, Only finally relenting in 1064, after a huge battle fought at sea, convinced him that conquering Denmark was a fool's errand. We have record of a ship that Harald had built during the early 1060s, as usual in the Heimskringler of Snorri Sturluson. This boat was known simply as the Great Dragon. The ship was built of the same size as the Long Serpent, and every part of her was finished with the greatest care. On the stem was a dragon head, and on the stern a dragon tail, and the sides of the bows of the ship were gilt. The vessel was of thirty-five rowers' benches, and was large for that size, and was remarkably handsome, for the king had everything belonging to the ship's equipment of the best, both sails and rigging, anchors, and cables. In late 1065, an Englishman arrived at the court of Harald Hardrada. He was Tostig Godwinson, exiled by his brother Harald during political machinations that would lead to his own enthronement. Tostig, half-Danish, who'd embarked on a fair few piratical campaigns of his own along the English coast, was angry and began seeking a new candidate for the throne. Scotland proved unreceptive, and finally he ended up with Hardrada, probably already contemplating an invasion of England. All went well with the initial invasion, with the Norwegian army overwhelming the Northern English at the Battle of Fulford. When Godwinson turned up with his elite housecarls, however, from the south, the legacy of Canute's Viking army, both men died after being struck down in the heart of the combat. Harold allegedly fighting in the front line as a berserker warrior. But, of course, another group of Scandinavian-descended people had a stake too, the Normans, defeating Godwinson and ending the Viking Age. So the story goes. Though they were brought there on Viking longboats. However, there was another frontier of the Scandinavian world, one which retained its roots for much longer eventually preserving the stories that we can still hear today. As the new millennium dawned, though much of the Scandinavian world, including Iceland, had already officially converted to Christianity, or would do so soon, it was still very common in the far western islands perched delicately upon stormy seas, for seers to be consulted and magic to be invoked. 
It was here, in this curious mix of isolation and cultural homogeneity. A land of long, dark winters spent huddling around the hearth that the old world lived on. In stories and family sagas conveyed from one generation to the next. Before finally being written down as literacy came in from lands far away during the 11th and 12th centuries. But Iceland was far from the limits of this sea world. It wasn't longboats that came here, not mostly. For deep sea voyaging, a hardier, wider vessel was needed, manned by a far smaller crew. We have evidence of these ships, vessels like the Klarstad, dating to around 1000 AD and found in southern Norway. And the Askakar, found at the river Gotta, dating from around the same period. These canars sit much deeper in the water. They were sailed rather than rowed. Not being able to beach anywhere like other Scandinavian vessels, they needed a jetty to do so. What their crews lacked in numbers, they made up for in cargo, maximizing profits and acting as the lifelines of these remote colonies, often separated by hundreds upon hundreds of miles of barren tundra and open sea. By the late 10th century, tales had long existed of lands to the west. Some even claimed to have visited these, It took a man of unique curiosity to find them and complete their colonization, however. Recorded in two 13th century family sagas, Eric the Red, in truth, had few other places to go, already having been exiled from Norway and Iceland, very quickly becoming overcrowded. Thus, after a disagreement in the 980s, Eric bought the ship that one of these adventurers had taken, maybe even some of his crew, and set off to discover these new lands over the horizon. Hundreds of Icelanders followed Eric in those years, many of them sailing to their deaths. Finally, a relatively habitable and uninhabited region was located. Eric and his men spent three summers exploring it, before heading back to Iceland to convince others to follow, which they did in droves. Such was the desire for land. An extremely difficult life awaited those who arrived in the new colonies. Two isolated valleys surrounded by tundra, that during the summer months blossomed into a relatively agreeable environment. Though life had to be adapted here, the people making their livings from walrus ivory, seal skins and furs for sale in European markets, the men regularly travelling hundreds of miles north on hunting expeditions, stopping off at places like Baffin Island, where a probable Norse camp has been found. They were always short on timber and iron, commodities which had to be shipped in from outside. 
it was very difficult to grow crops here, making it even more important to raise animals, which of course had to be carried there, maybe on boats such as this one found at Skolderlev. And this, a much larger vessel dating to 1025, found at Hedeby. It was on a ship not too dissimilar to these that the next step would come. It may be that given the treeless landscape of Greenland, it was an unspoken of need for raw resources and timber that drove the voyages. In the year 1000, it was Eric's son, Leif, that would take them there, again pushing back the limits of the world's end. Establishing a short-lived colony in what is now North America. Whilst there, Leif and his men may have indulged in some local berries, fermenting them into a sort of alcoholic beverage. And thus the place would soon be known as Vinland, the land of wine. Before long, however, Eric died and Leif took up his position as leader of the Greenland settlement. Though he didn't return to the new continent himself, several of Leif's family members would go back over the coming decades. In a total of three more settlement attempts, fraught with adventure, encounters with Native Americans, and even brutal kin strife within the Norse settler communities. This is a fascinating era, and one which I'll be covering in much more detail in the future, so don't forget to subscribe. We know about this era not just from the sagas, but from archaeological record too. A famous Norse site at Lonzo Meadows on Newfoundland contains two large halls and numerous smaller workshops, perhaps containing enough space for around 250 people. After more confrontations with the Native Americans of the region, however, known as Skraelings in the Sargas, the colony was eventually abandoned. The Norse would probably never live in America again, though they would periodically go back on canals to get timber. A situation hinted at by a coin of Harald Hardrada's son found not far from the Newfoundland settlement. In the later 11th century, historian Adam of Bremen mentions Vinland too, suggesting it to still be at least partially relevant in the minds of Northern Europeans. Within a few centuries, however, it would be forgotten entirely. In the long run, Scandinavians had very little impact on North America, their numbers simply being far too small, and the landscape vast. So much so, by the time Columbus arrived there in 1492, all knowledge of the place had been lost.
By the 14th century, due in part to the Little Ice Age, which made life in the North Atlantic increasingly difficult. Even Greenland was mostly forgotten. Its colonists left largely to go their own way. By the time Protestant missionaries arrived in Greenland in the 16th century, thinking they would convert the Norse they found there, they found only Inuit and the ruins of ages gone by. The last recorded Rus campaign against Byzantium to incorporate Scandinavians, or at least those descended from them, referred to as Varangians, came in 1043. Just like the attacks carried out in 941 and earlier, however, the fleet was decimated by war galleys carrying a deadly secret weapon, Greek fire. We simply don't know whether these warriors sailed on longboats or a similar kind of vessel. And in truth, very little archaeology has been carried out in comparison to that undertaken in Scandinavia. At that time, during the mid-11th century, the Rus prince Yaroslav the Wise still enjoyed contacts with the Northlands. Though, in truth, these were little different to his links with other European powers, making a point of marrying off multiple daughters to monarchs all over Europe. Perhaps part of the reason for his epithet, the wise. After Yaroslav's reign and the breakup of the Kievan Rus into a number of smaller realms, the situation was nowhere near as stable as it had been, and never would be again. Scandinavians still travelled south to take up service with Constantinople, though now they mostly travelled via boat or through Hungary and Germany, rather than the river routes of the Rus, who were now almost entirely Slavic in culture. The Varangian Guard continued to serve Byzantium, perhaps even until the 14th and 15th centuries, in name at least. But in the years immediately following 1066, curiously, their ranks were increasingly made up of Anglo-Saxon recruits, many of them Anglo-Scandinavian in origin. Some of these men were landowners ousted by Norman attack, one such figure, recorded in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and perhaps a later saga tradition, as Seward Barn, is said to have arrived sometime in the later 11th century, to aid the Byzantine Emperor Alexius Comnenus against the Seljuk Turks, in a precursor to the Crusades. According to some traditions, being granted lands in the Crimea for his troubles, a region that would go on to be known as New England. Although this is far from being universally accepted by scholars. By this time, longboats were still very much in use, 
though they often carried Christian crosses, as well as or instead of dragon sigils. They now often travelled a different way too, as well as into the Baltic and more remote corners of their own kingdoms, sometimes heading to the Holy Land as crusaders. In fact, the first European king ever to go on crusade was a Scandinavian, Sigurd of Norway. Following in the footsteps and expanding on earlier rulers such as Robert of Normandy and Eric of Denmark to go on pilgrimage. But this time, travelling with a fleet to war. Rampaging across the Mediterranean until helping King Baldwin of Jerusalem in expanding his fledgling realm. After riding together to the Jordan River to undergo baptism in the holy waters there. We find other evidence of crusading Norsemen too, in the form of runestones on Orkney, and many written records of ventures much closer to home, into the Baltic and the rest of Scandinavia. A new era had most certainly dawned. Viking ferocity would merge with Christian zeal in taking the fight to the still pagan elements of their homelands and in future generations deep into Eastern Europe. It was the Slavs who were some of the last to hold on to their pagan roots on the mainland. With the last of them, the Rainy, holding out on the island of Rugia before finally being defeated by King Valdemar of Denmark in 1168. Likewise, across the Channel in Britain, 1066 was far from the last time Scandinavians invaded. In 1069, Danish King Sven Estridsson sent a force to England of 240 longships under his son Canute to face off against the Normans. Landing in Dover, they marched north, rousing up support, eventually seizing York. William the Conqueror, however, showed his military genius as he was able to quickly retake the city before launching into a vicious, scorched-earth campaign of the Danish northern areas known as the Harrying of the North. Sven soon landed in person to join the war in 1070, but was reluctant to meet William in open combat, and fled soon afterwards. Canute tried again and again to reclaim England, all the way up to his death in 1086. In Scotland, attacks came too. King Magnus Barefoot of Norway came with a great expedition in the late 11th century to subdue all the Scottish Isles. Dying in Ireland as he attempted to bring the Ostermen of Dublin under Norwegian suzerainty, succeeding in taking Dublin for a year before dying at the hands of Norse-Irish kings. Viking attacks on Britain continued well into the 12th century, though for the most part new systems of control had put a stop to independent people going Viking. These were now royal expeditions. During the anarchy of the mid-12th century, Norse king Eystein II 
took advantage of strife to ravage the eastern coast from Scotland to York, sacking the town of Scarborough and making off large amounts of loot on his longships. Yet this was to be the last major recorded venture, for soon enough a different type of ship would take hold. In the north, on isles and fjords, battles continued between Norway, Scotland and the settler communities somewhere in between, well into the late 13th century. With longships still heavily being favoured by many local rulers, continuing to play an integral role particularly in the power struggles of the Irish Sea and the Scottish Isles, with famed Norse-scale leaders like Somerled attempting invasions of the Scottish mainland, and Norwegians getting involved all the way up to the Battle of Largs in 1263, where longships are thought to have been used. But all this was to change, and soon. A few decades ago, a fascinating archaeological find was made in a Swedish harbour, dating to the 12th century. Unlike ships found from earlier ages, these are of a very different type. Reflecting a further leap forward in shipbuilding technology. In much of the North Sea, the age of the longship was now effectively over. This was the time of the cog. Floating castles in the water perhaps developed in part to counter longships. Though in time becoming their own unique thing, integrated across Northern Europe. Scandinavians no longer enjoying an inherent advantage over their southern neighbours. By the late 1100s, English pirates using cogs harried the English Channel and the North Sea. And by the 1300s, Denmark's entire fleet was made out of this new kind of vessel. Yet, variants of longships would never stop being used by fishermen and small folk in Scandinavian regions. The tradition never really having died out. And today, they are being resurrected again. You've been watching History Time. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and I'll see you on the next one.